Amen. Michael Buffer was a no-name master of ceremonies who worked second-tier boxing matches until he came up with a five-word phrase that always excited the crowd. In fact, Buffer's phrase made him famous and has now been repeated at sporting events all around the world. I'd love to recruit Michael Buffer to introduce this next section in the revelation of Jesus Christ. I can't think of a better way to open chapters 6 through 19 than his five-word phrase. Oh, as a matter of fact, here he is. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! There you go. Let's get ready to rumble is the appropriate opening for what follows here in Revelation. In chapter 5, Jesus takes the scroll, the title deed to God's creation of this earth. On the cross, as the Lamb, He redeemed what humanity had lost to Satan in its rebellion. Yet purchasing a parcel and possessing that parcel are two different tasks. Satan is a squatter, and he won't relinquish control without a fight, Thus, he has to be evicted. And the rest of Revelation is how Jesus opens the seals binding this scroll and in doing so unleashes horrific judgment on the planet that is resisting his will and his reign. Well, Revelation chapter 6 begins, let's get ready to rumble. No, it doesn't. As John puts it. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come up and see. One of the angelic creatures surrounding God's throne becomes the MC, and he shouts, Come and see. For the Lamb John sees packs a massive wallop. Here is a Lamb that roars like a lion. God's long-awaited judgment is about to fall on the rebel planet. And it starts with horses. With horses. You know, today we think of a horse as docile and domesticated. Yet historically, horses were always associated with war. Horses were the tanks of antiquity. The cavalry always had a leg up on the infantry. Thus, four horses in heaven charging the earth was an ominous sight. It struck fear in John's heart. Jesus is about to prove he's not horsing around. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Here is the first of the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Again, remember, these are war horses snorting, stomping, charging out of heaven. The white horse carries the Antichrist. The red horse speaks of war. The black horse, famine. And death rides with the pale horse. Now some Bible teachers mistake the rider on the white horse as Jesus. And this is exactly what Satan intends. You see, if you want to fake a $100 bill, you don't put President Trump on the front of it. Pass a Trump C-note and it won't fool anyone. You want the bogus bill to look authentic. And this is the devil's strategy. 
He wants the false Christ on the white horse to look like the true Christ. You know, it's true that in Revelation chapter 19, we see the Lord Jesus returning to earth, again, riding on a white horse. But that's where the similarities between Jesus and this rider end. Jesus returns at the end of the period of judgment, after the seventh seal. This guy rides in from the outset. Here, Jesus is in heaven, breaking seals and sending horses, not riding on them. Recall from chapter 1, Jesus has a sharp sword. But the false Christ here carries a bow with no arrows. You remember back in Genesis 11, Nimrod, the hunter, was the first to lead a revolt against God. Tradition says that he was the inventor of archery. After the flood, God hung up his bow of judgment in the clouds. God would never again judge the world with water. The rainbow was the symbol of his promise. But Nimrod hated God. And he took his bow to draw men after himself. His bow was a symbol of the conquest over men's hearts. This is the goal of the rider here. He has a bow, but no arrows. Apparently, he conquers the nations without firing a shot. He'll be hailed as a man of peace, an expert in diplomacy. He designs a sinister shalom. There's also a difference here in the crown he wears. His is the laurel wreath or competitor's prize. Whereas in Revelation 19, Jesus comes wearing a diadem or a kingly crown. The rider on the white horse steals or usurps his authority. And it only lasts briefly. Jesus has the right to rule forever. Once I read an Israeli tour guide who confessed to his group, I'm so desperate, I'd sign a deal with the devil if it would mean peace. And sadly, that is exactly what Israel will one day do. All of Israel will do. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that the final seven years of great tribulation, God's judgment on this earth, begins when Israel signs a treaty with this white horse rider, the Antichrist. Well, verse 3 continues. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. It doesn't take long for the peace orchestrated by the white horse to crumble. Paul predicts in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Today the world longs for peace, but this false peace will be short-lived. The second horse speaks of war and bloodshed. The foreshadowing of all the skirmishes that lead up to the final battle of Armageddon. And notice its color is so appropriate. It's blood red. The death toll will be astronomical. Millions upon millions will die violently. But as the world suffers from war, Jesus pops another seal on the scroll. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. In the first century, scales were a symbol of commerce. All buying and selling was done by weights and balances. 
He says, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. In the Roman world, a denarius was, a, was typical of a day's wages. So here, basic food staples are costing huge sums of money. Inflation has skyrocketed. Global famine will drive up the price of food. You know, living in America, we are sheltered from the conditions in which most of the people on this planet live. It's frequently stated, one-third of the world's population has plenty to eat. That's us, guys. That's America. One-third is undernourished, and one-third is on the verge of starvation. Yet in light of the wacky weather we've seen in recent years, it's not too difficult to imagine a drought severe enough to wipe out an entire growing season. Imagine a global pandemic that ruins the world's meat supply. Hey, in 2020, famine conditions aren't that hard to envision, are they? Our kids could join the third world's children who you see on TV with their sunken eyeballs and their exposed ribs. Notice, too, the irony in verse 6. Basic foods will be depleted, but there's still an abundance of luxury items like oil and wine. It's God's sarcasm on man's priorities. We'll have booze to drink, but no bread to eat. It's even more profound if the oil in verse 6 refers to petroleum, not just olive oil. We'll have gasoline to fill up our fancy cars and drive them around, but no food for our family. There's coming a time when the judgments of Jesus will rock this planet. False peace is followed by war. Warfare causes famine, and famine yields to death. For verse 7 tells us, For when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. The Greek word translated pale is chloris, from which we get our words chlorine or chlorophyll. It denotes a greenish, yellowish color. It's the flesh tones of a person who's seasick or a corpse without makeup. He says, And the name of him who sat on this fourth horse was death, and Hades followed with him. Death has an entourage. Hades fills up on the heels of death. See, the pale rider is thinning out the wicked population. And in light of our battle with COVID-19, it's now pretty easy to imagine widespread deaths. For years, the World Health Organization has warned of antibiotic-resistant superplagues that could easily kill millions. Apparently, the pale rider will have plenty of diabolical tools in his arsenal. And together, the cumulative effect of all four horses and the impact is staggering. For John writes, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. A quarter of the world's population will die as a result of these plagues. You know, currently the global population is seven and a half billion people. Thus, 25% equals about 1.9 billion people. You know, it's hard to imagine 1.9 billion of anything let alone dead bodies. You know, if you counted one number per second, it would take you 11 days to reach a million. That seems like a long time. 
But it would take you 60 years counting one number per second to, to count to 1.9 billion. Now imagine that many corpses littering our planet. These four horsemen will kill one out of every four humans. And all the while this carnage is occurring on earth, remember what John is seeing happening in heaven. Believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus are before God's throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb. I'd a whole lot rather be in heaven during this time than on earth. The church is in heaven. That's you and me. Before this judgment comes down, remember the church goes up. We'll be raptured, the Bible says, or snatched away. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, God did not appoint us to wrath. But there's seven seals, not just four. And in verse 9, Jesus breaks another. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they hailed. As Jesus pops the seals and judges the earth, guess where the rebels vent their frustration? Rather than take responsibility for their sin and its consequences, they shift the blame on the believers. Followers of Jesus become the brunt of their anger. During this time of great tribulation, yet to come to this earth, some people will recognize God's judgment and turn to Jesus. They'll be saved, but far from safe. The rider on the white horse will make it a crime to be a Christian. Anybody who takes Jesus as Lord will be silenced. There'll be multiple martyrs. And we see these martyrs in verse 9. Their souls, not their bodies, their souls are crying out from under the altar in heaven. This means they were saved after the rapture. See, the rapture will take believers, body and soul. When Jesus returns, turns for the church, he'll be a body snatcher. He'll rapture not only our soul, but our body as well. This corruptible must put on incorruption. But the tribulation believers are souls camped out under the altar. They've been brutalized by injustice, and they let us know it in verse 10. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Wow, they sing a familiar refrain, don't they? It's a lot like the prayers we often pray. When you see a criminal walk out of a courtroom because of a technicality, or watch justices uphold rules that sanction the murder of innocent babies, or realize evil men are enslaving young girls in the sex trade, or when you hear of deviants who make millions off child porn, don't you get angry when you hear these things? Don't you cry out for vengeance? I do. Isn't there a righteous recoil in you whenever you see evil prosper and good despised? These things shouldn't be. In Psalm 58, David saw evil men going unpunished and he prayed, Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. You're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you up. No, I'm just kidding. Break their teeth in their mouth. I've prayed that prayer a time or two. I've, oh, I've prayed for a few teeth to be broken. We, we want justice. There's a cry in all of us for justice and righteousness. Today the world glorifies 
uh, it glorifies tolerance for all religions except Christianity. Faith in Jesus is the sticking point, isn't it? And it's a small leap from bigotry today to brutality then. The false Christ on the white horse will hand down a death penalty to anyone who worships the true Christ. He says, Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. In Revelation 19, Jesus will return. And when he does, the martyr's blood will finally be avenged. Their pain will get eased. But for a time, they have to wait. And this word wait, do you like that word wait? Few of us do, do we? This word wait is the challenge for our faith as well. Jesus will right all wrongs. Justice will come, but not on our timetable. Verse 11, rest a little while longer is as relevant to us today as it will be for these future saints. And then in verse 12, Jesus breaks the scariest seal yet. I looked when he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. This earthquake is the big one. It blows up the Richter scale. The earth convulses soot and smoke that turns the sky black and the moon red. He says, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. The Greek word translated stars is asterisk. It applies not only to stars, but to asteroids or meteorites or any cosmic projectile streaking through outer space. Just as the autumn winds rustle the trees and the leaves fall to the ground, one day Jesus will shake the heavens above us and celestial bodies will pummel this earth. He says, then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This upheaval is almost beyond description. Obviously, when he cracks the sixth seal, Jesus takes the gloves off. This is a rough, bare-knuckle judgment. Jesus unleashes massive, cataclysmic judgments upon this rebel planet. We won't be, but if we were here on the earth experiencing these judgments, it would make us all want to have pity on the people around us. It would cause us all to back off our cross for vengeance. Boy, if you miss the rapture and you're still here when the sixth seal breaks, all I can say is pity on you. Take all the recent meteor movies, and there are a lot of them. You know, it's become a Hollywood genre. Armageddon and Deep Impact and Asteroid versus Earth, Collision Earth, Meteor, Asteroid, etc., etc. Take all their special effects, and it's still too tame to illustrate the damage such an actual event would do. I saw a movie once. It wasn't a Hollywood flick. It was actually a National Geographic special. It was entitled Asteroids Deadly Impact. It's a documentary on not just the possibility of a major meteorite strike in our future, but its inevitability. 
Do you realize that every day the earth gets bombarded with 20 tons of cosmic rock? Every day? Most of it is space dust, but larger strikes occur. Geologists can take you to over 140 craters all around the globe that are the result of incoming asteroids and comets and meteors. And according to verse 13, this is going to happen again. Recently, CBS News ran a special report. It quoted astronomers who estimate that there are over 400,000 NEOs, near-Earth objects, up to 1,000 meters wide that could strike planet Earth with little or no warning. In fact, last Sunday, August 16th, an automobile-sized asteroid made the closest flyby of our planet ever recorded. As I was preaching, it was 1,830 miles above the Pacific Ocean near Australia, traveling 27,600 miles per hour. And it was undetected until it had passed us. NASA scientist Paul Cotus, he explained that it came from the direction of the sun. Thus, we didn't see it coming. It was a close call. By the way, NASA says another one is coming in November. I think the day after the election, wouldn't that be appropriate? But when Jesus breaks the sixth seal, he won't miss, friends. The stars will fall. A superquake creates massive fissures in the earth's crust. Continents shift. Islands vanish. As the ground shakes under their feet, the inhabitants of the earth, they look up and they see the sky. It's receding or rolling back like a party paper horn after its blast. And earth's response to this sixth seal is in verse 15. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's coming. Judgment is coming. I know it's not popular. I know most people don't talk about it. But it's coming. God's judgment on this planet is coming. What a phrase. The wrath of the Lamb. What a phrase. Here's the ultimate oxymoron. No other animal is as docile and gentle as a lamb. Likewise, no one is more gentle and tender with a trusting heart than Jesus. But the day will come when he'll be gentle no longer. The rejecting heart will taste his wrath. The lamb will roar. This is the side of Jesus we all need to see. This is what the revelation reveals to us. In the sixth seal, the lamb has thrown a flurry of punches and has this earth on the ropes. It appears to be a knockout, and it raises the question asked in verse 17, who is able to stand? Chapter 7 answers that question. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, figurative for the four points of the compass, east, west, north, and south. Four angels are holding the four winds of the earth, 
And the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. The wind is a mighty force, yet just four angels here wrestle the jet streams into submission. In other words, suddenly it all goes quiet. Seconds earlier, winds of judgment were howling. But now God has issues for us to consider. Things quiet down. Judgment is not all that's on God's mind. You'll notice a structure in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. God's wrath is poured out in three waves. There are seven seals followed by seven trumpets followed by seven bowls. And in between each of the sevens, Jesus inserts a vignette dealing with a person or persons central to the events occurring at the time. Here in chapter 7, John sees two groups. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. The angels sent to judge are suddenly halted in their tracks. God orders them, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, Jesus is about to seal the fate of this wicked world, but first, he seals his own. He reveals his heart. Jesus suspends judgment in order to show mercy. Now, recall a seal was an insignia stamped into hot wax. It was a mark of ownership. The seven seals on the scroll spoke of Jesus' ownership over God's creation. Now he's about to seal a group of people. For in this time of great tribulation, there will be folks on the earth who embrace Jesus as Lord. He'll seal them with the Holy Spirit. He'll put his mark of ownership on the foreheads of his servants. This all reveals the master's heart that in the midst of judgment, he still shows mercy. Verse 4 reads, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, guess how many were sealed? 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Over the years, many cults have tried to claim to be one of the 144,000. For a time, Jehovah's Witness identified themselves as the 144,000 until their role swelled to more than that number. And that's when they modified their view that the 144,000 were only the elite Joseph, Jehovah's Witnesses. The worldwide church of God claimed to be part of the 144,000, as do some Seventh-day Adventists today. And yet you have to ask yourself the question, did anybody read verse 4? For it clearly identifies this group as 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. These guys are Jews. 
If someone tells you that they're one of the 144,000, just ask them, which tribe? There are 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. This group is an exclusively Jewish fraternity. Realize, according to the Bible, there are really three types of people, only three types of people in the world. They're Jews, they're Gentiles, which is everybody else, and then there's the church. And only one of those groups will be spared the wrath of God in these end times. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says of the church, God did not appoint us to wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 is the church speaking to Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. A great escape awaits true believers. See, the great tribulation is for unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. It's the final opportunity for both. Apparently, this is the jolt needed to open blind eyes to God's truth. And these 144,000 Jews will believe. God will seal them and equip them and use them to spread the gospel. You know, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his followers, go and make disciples of all the nations. And this remains our job today. You and I, it remains our job to share the gospel. But in the great tribulation, the church will be in heaven. God will still use the gospel. It alone has the power of God to salvation. But in the church's absence, the delivery system for the gospel will change. God will use other means. In Revelation 14, God sends angels flying through the skies, declaring to humanity the everlasting gospel. Revelation 11 speaks of two witnesses who grab the world's attention by performing miracles. And here in chapter 7, he empowers 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And imagine their effectiveness. I mean, these are 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. Turn loose on the earth. These are Jewish converts to Jesus, sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 9, we're told that they even have supernatural protection. And they preach post-rapture against this backdrop of these cataclysmic judgments. This explains why millions of people all around the world will come to faith in Jesus. Did you know that everywhere in the world today apart from North America and Europe, Christianity and the church are experiencing unprecedented growth everywhere. South Korea, Africa, China, India, Indonesia, even some traditional Muslim countries, all across the planet, the church is growing by 80,000 members per day. Believers in Jesus start 3,500 churches every week. Yet the largest most sweeping spiritual awakening is still future. And ironically, it won't occur until the church has been raptured. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus foresaw a final worldwide burst of evangelistic activity prior to his return. And it gets carried out largely by this supernaturally sealed army of Jews. Now notice the immediate results of their efforts. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could number. 
Here's another group of believers. Now a horde of Gentiles. Remember, this is not the church. We're in heaven. This is the group. This consists of people who believed in the gospel witness of the 144,000 and have now embraced Jesus. And pay attention to the size of this group. John calls it a great multitude, which no one can number. Later in Revelation 9, John sees an army that he numbers at 200 million. If the group here is a size that can't be numbered, it has to exceed 200 million. He's already numbered that. Perhaps a billion people will be saved on this planet during the Great Tribulation. And notice where this multitude is from and where they're now standing. They hail from all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. People from every corner of the globe are now standing before the throne in heaven in this picture. Implied is that many of the believing multitude here are those that died for their faith in the Great Tribulation. These are future martyrs for Christ. I've heard many well-meaning preachers imply that the rapture, that when the rapture comes, all hope will be lost. You know, once the rapture takes place, you've missed the bus, man. That's not biblical. You can be saved after the rapture, but it becomes a deadly proposition. For by this point in the future, there's no more tolerance. Christianity has become a capital crime. And it's not just martyrdom that you should fear. Throughout history, evil men have devised tortures that make death look like a welcome friend. If you can't live for Jesus now in relatively peaceful times, how in the world are you going to live for him then? It's been said the Great Tribulation will be the Christian Holocaust. Notice, though, not only the number of people who get saved at this time, but the nationalities they represent. They're from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're from all nations. Apparently not one of the earth's 193 countries are missing. All tongues, not a single language group ends up unreached. All peoples, every race, skin tone, every culture is represented. Heaven is going to be rich in diversity. If you don't like diversity, you're not going to like heaven. It's going to be rich in diversity. Yet though this multitude is culturally diverse, notice they're spiritually united. For before the Lamb, they come clothed with white robes. Here's how I picture heaven. It's multicultural. You're going to see flowing African dashikis and urban hoodies and conservative suits and country jean jackets. There are going to be a lot of robe styles in heaven. But every robe will be the same color. For white represents our purity in Christ. As Isaiah puts it, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Jesus is the commonality that's greater than all our differences. This answers the question that John asked at the end of the sixth seal. Who is able to stand? The answer is those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And notice in heaven we'll all worship alike. The crowd stands with palm branches in their hands. Apparently in heaven it's Palm Sunday every day. The lamb doesn't cleanse our robes white just so we can get to heaven. There's a job for us to do once we arrive. Heaven's chief preoccupation is praise 
to the Lord. And this is what John hears, verse 10, describes the roar that goes up from the multitude. He says, crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Heaven is the most racially and culturally diverse place you'll ever go. Everyone in heaven is in total agreement. Everybody got there the exact same way. Salvation belongs to God and the Lamb. Mohammed didn't get you there. Mormonism didn't get you there. Roman Catholicism and the Virgin Mary didn't help you. The Buddha didn't do it. Neither did your good works, your charitable deeds. Only God and the Lamb gets you to heaven. And notice in verse 11, the praise is contagious. He says, all the angels stood around the throne. That's billions and billions of angels. And the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Notice heaven's praise is framed by two amens, a double affirmation. You know, the most universally held concept in the world is that God is forever worthy of glory and honor and thanksgiving. Only Satan and stubborn men resist that truth. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I'm sure John's a little stunned. He said, what do I know? I mean, why does an elder in heaven ask John? He's the new kid on the block. He's the one still wearing a visitor's badge. John replies, and I said to him, Sir, you know. Tosses it back. So he said to me, and here the elder answers his own question. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And here's another oxymoron, made white in the blood. Normally blood doesn't turn a robe white, does it? The blood of Jesus, though, has holy hemoglobin. It takes out the grimiest grime and the dirtiest dirt. The only way to be spiritually clean is to wash your robe in the blood of Christ. Now in chapter 8, the lion will order the angels who are holding back the wind to stand down. The wind will blow again. Judgment will resume. But chapter 7 is the eye of the hurricane. Winds of judgment have come. Winds of judgment will resume. But for the moment, God is offering mercy. The elder is speaking of the great multitude that came out of the great tribulation. And his thoughts now are on life in heaven. What life is going to be like. In fact, his descriptions of heaven are actually in the travel brochure sent to all believers. These are the things that you and I can look forward to when we get to heaven. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Notice first, as we said before, the focus in heaven is on the one thing the world forgets most about, the throne of God. His rule, His reign. Heaven isn't about streets of gold and the glassy sea. It's about God's throne. And what will we be doing there? John says we'll serve Him day and night. I like that. Imagine you'll have a specific assignment in heaven. You'll have specific tasks assigned to you. You won't just be 
trample leaning on cumulus clouds or trying to learn to play the harp. You're going to be busy in heaven, not bored. You're going to have specific tasks assigned just for you. He says, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And this is what is going to make heaven so heavenly. We'll finally be with our Lord, unhindered and unencumbered. Then verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. This was a problem, will be a problem for those who come out of great tribulation. Recall the black horse of famine. But now in heaven, there's lots to eat and drink. Hey, heaven is the land of second helpings. Aren't you glad? We're also told of heaven, the sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. And in August in Georgia, that's a wonderful promise. There's protection in heaven from the harsh environments here on earth. Heaven brings relief. And then verse 17 conveys one of the most beautiful thoughts in all of the Bible. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. What an interesting and provocative thought. The Lamb will be our shepherd. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But notice, there will be tears to wipe. There'll be tears to dab. If you're going to heaven, bring a tissue with you. We will have some regrets. There will be tears. The Bible never promises no crying in heaven. Only that once we get there, Jesus will wipe away all of our tears.